So tomorrow, some of us are off to visit Wat Pong for the annual meditation retreat and day of remembrance for Lumpur Cha. They call it Ngan Acharya Bucha. Ngan means like an event. Acharya Bucha, where you show respect for your teacher, Acharya. So it's a time to go back to our roots, remember Lumpur Cha, all his wonderful teachings that we are lucky enough to still have in books and tapes, and also to meet with fellow Sangha, the living disciples of Ajahn Chah, who in a as a group preserve the teachings and the ways of practice that have been handed down to us since the time of Ajahn Chah. So it can have a good effect on the Sangha as a whole when we come together, share certain common ways of talking about Dhamma, looking at the Dhamma, meditation techniques, and of course the same Vinaya, ways of training. If you go to Ajahn Chah's monastery, <coughs> the forest is, has still the same characteristic. It's, it's cool, peaceful. Many of the older trees are exactly the same trees that were there when Lumpur Chah was alive, teaching. Many of the monks stay in their grots during this period. <coughs> Something Ajahn Chah encouraged us to do in the dry season. Move out of our kutis, stay in grots for a while. Remind ourselves of the simplicity of the life of a forest monk. The uncertainty, staying in the forest we're a bit more exposed to the wind and the rain and there's animals and bugs around. And just the peace. Even though it's sometimes hard, you live in simplicity, camping in the forest. It's peaceful because not much is happening. You don't have many possessions. Surrounded by trees, it's peaceful. Which has a good effect on our heart. Obviously, Lumpur Chah encouraged us to train in the Dhamma Vinaya. It's a training to be done. That's more than just a, a simple meditation technique, but it's a whole lifestyle, a way of learning, educating this mind to recognize suffering for what it is, to understand its cause, and to develop the knowledge and the insight to abandon the cause of suffering. So Lumpur Chao would say things like, when you meditate, you cultivate mindfulness, you bring your mind to a state of peace or stillness, 
at that point everything becomes Dhamma, becomes a teaching. He's just pointing out the truth that to really understand what the Buddha was pointing to and explaining, we have to practice the Dhamma. We have to develop mindfulness and we have to learn to investigate the truth, turning our attention inwards. <clears throat> so we can see, really see the nature of this mind, how it's affected by Kilesa, mental defilements, rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. And how the Dhamma, the Eightfold Path, the Sila, Samadhi and Panya can remedy that and help us to remove these troublesome, troublemaking defilements from the mind. Replace them with something better, Sila, Samadhi and Panya. To do that, we have to practice, we have to develop this quality of inner knowing, mindful awareness, clear comprehension and insight into the true nature of things. This is no longer memorizing and theorizing about the Dhamma, but just seeing the Dhamma because the mind is quiet enough and clear enough to see clearly, see it properly. The Buddha said that <clears throat> a well-trained mind is like our best friend. Obviously we rely on external good friends in the practice, the Kalyanamitta of our teachers and fellow monastics. But we also have to develop the internal Kalyanamitta, our own good friend what we associate with mentally, day by day. Do we turn to the Dhamma and develop right view, right understanding, straightening out our views so they are in line with the Dhamma and without delusion? Or do we associate internally with more defiled mental states that bring us more stress and suffering and more confusion? So the Buddha said we can be our own best friend or we can be our own worst enemy. We don't have to look outside for friends and enemies. Our own mind already is providing with, with those. When you don't see the harm of greed, you attach to craving and views that support greed and the arising of greed then we're harming our own mind, our own happiness. When we attach to craving based in anger, aversion, which supports views and attachments based on that, then again we're harming ourselves. We're our own worst enemy when we follow the way of anger. Similarly with delusion, when we're not reflecting on our, what our attachments are, our views, the way we look at things, our attitudes, our thoughts. It's very easy to slip into delusion. 
what Ajahn Chah was teaching was a whole way of training to brighten the mind and wake up to the truth. He always pointed out how our external behavior will reflect internally what's going on in the mind. So when one's comfortable and at ease in the practice, one keeps the Vinaya, putting forth effort, generally that is reflected in our behavior. We tend to be at ease in ourselves, with others, what we say, what we do. When we're not putting much effort into the practice, what mind is more focused on the world, worldly pursuits, well that will reflect in our external behavior. It's difficult to follow the monastic training rules, difficult to get on with other people and so on. So externally tends to reflect what's going on internally. And the more we practice mindfulness in meditation and just in daily life, the more you're waking up to your own habits of mind and this conditioning process that we've been stuck in for so long, at the very least one lifetime. Today someone told me there's a a little boy in Thailand who can remember back 814 years to past lifetimes, over 814 years. So there are are those who believe in and maybe even can recollect past lives, but even just one life. As you become more mind, as you become more mindful, you see how often we're just reacting to the world around us, following our own habits of greed, anger, delusion, following opinions, mental behavior that we may have not observed before very closely. But as you become more mindful and meditate more, you do start to observe. Often with a chuckle as you see yourself reacting over and over again in the same old ways. Sometimes in ways where we even know it's harmful for us, but we're just stuck out of habit. The calaces are very fast. We all know how easily we can lose our temper very quickly when we don't get what we want or we experience something painful, unpleasant. How easily we can slip into desire and greed, even in this simple lifestyle. For monks, greed and desire tends to settle around very simple things like the requisites that we have, food, drink, our simple possessions, and so on. You notice how we can get very used to certain habit patterns. We've always got to have a certain kind of food, kind of drink. We like certain requisites or we're always desiring certain kinds of requisites, even the simple things we use. But as you practice mindfulness, you're interrupting that process and looking at it more closely. 
And sometimes we teach ourselves to not follow desire every time it emerges in the mind. So we have training rules and we wisely reflect on, say, the requisites we use. Instead of just choosing food according to our preferences, we also reflect on why do we eat food? What's the purpose? What's the right amount? Why we use any requisite? What's the purpose? Just to support the holy life, keeping us healthy, unharmed and so on. <clears throat> Rather than for following our own taste or fashion or preference. Sometimes we can get caught into preferences, you know, even for the kind of cloth we have for requisites, the kind of bowl stand, the kind of crocheted bowl cover, even simple things, the color of our robes, the shade, the color of cloth can become a big thing. When you have little, then often your craving centers on simple things. If we don't look and challenge this, then we will never notice, never see. But as Ajahn Chah pointed out, because we're living in a simple way, you can abandon, see and abandon a lot of craving in a very direct way by catching it forming about, around very simple things and really learning how the mind functions. Because in the lay life it's often so dispersed, all our possessions, all our expectations and desires in life are so dispersed, so complex. It's almost like you don't know where to start. <coughs> in the monk's life, we can often see craving coming up on a daily basis very directly, very easily, and start to work with it, teach ourselves to reflect on it more wisely. As Anjan Chah said, when your mind becomes still, so using a meditation technique, everything becomes Dhamma. So you see the nature of craving is impermanent. It's a mental state and it's not self. We don't have to believe it and follow it. We can see it, but we can also let go of it, let it be in our mind. So you can see that with food and robes and the things we have, sometimes we attach to, you know, we want to get a certain product, a nice pen knife or a nice clock, or nowadays a nice mobile phone maybe for senior monks, torches, all these things can be a basis for desire, but then you watch the desire come up. And you see, is it really necessary? Obviously, if we are offered certain requisites, we may choose to use them, or we may choose not to, depending on how appropriate we see. But as you practice mindfulness and wise reflection, it puts you in that position where you can see craving for what it is, as an impermanent mental state that you don't have to take up as self, identify with, but you can choose follow it or drop it. If you drop it, you experience a different kind of peace. You know, there's the peace of getting what you want and there's the peace of letting go of craving and they're different, they have a different 
taste, different ex flavor in the mind. One is still very precarious and will keep biting us and causing us suffering. Even when you get what you want, you're still going to get suffering. The other is true relief from the effects of craving, true freedom, true peace. Sajjan Chah used to say, you follow your craving to get certain things, your pleasures, your comforts, the things you desire, but it's even when you get them, it's like you've grasped the snake by the tail and it'll still come round and bite you later. Sometimes we get even really obsessive over very simple things, but there is a chance to really let go of a lot of attachment in those situations if you can be patient enough and willing enough to keep observing and letting go. <clears throat> I remember once, many years ago, what Mapchan, a monk, came to stay and he confided in a friend and he said he was really there because some Bangkok people had offered a really nice kind of thick cotton cloth that was very good for requisites and he couldn't find it anywhere in any other monastery. So that was his whole intention was simply to be able to stay there and request some of this cloth to make a bunch of robes and requisites because that was his underlying intention that was his sort of obsession you know he didn't put much in have much interest in other aspects of the practice so eventually he had to leave because he wasn't putting an effort into the chores and he wasn't meditating much and he clearly had some ulterior motive in his mind for being there. He wasn't very committed to the practice. And it became obvious over time. A craving it tends to be like that. The more you follow it, the more disturbance it brings you. It brings you disharmony with others and disharmony within yourself. So we use this simplicity and the way of practice, the repetition of the lifestyle, the routines and so on, that on a worldly level might seem a bit boring, unin uninteresting, uninspiring, but for a practitioner it's a very useful situation to be in. <clears throat> Simplifying your life gives you the chance to see craving arising, identify it, and use wisdom to reflect on it, to see it as an Icha Dukkha Anatta. And the Buddha has already given us the teachings, the sort of the guidelines. So just say with the worldly dhammas, Lumpur Chah used to love talking about them, gain and loss, praise and blame, status, loss of status, pleasure and pain. You know, they come together in whatever way you look at it, they come together. So if your mind is still following craving, for anything, for gains, you know, material gains of any form, whether simple or complex, cheap or expensive. If there's that kind of craving, you have to teach yourself what you're craving is also going to bring you loss. Where's there's gain, there's also loss. You get something, it gets lost, 
broken, it wears out, you use it up, or you give it away. But in the end, where there's gain, there's loss. You crave praise, recognition, attention, want to impress people. You also get criticism. The more people you know, the more praise you might get, but the more criticism you'll get. They come together. If you're craving any kind of power, status, authority, influence, you're also going to get the decline of that, the decline of influence, power, authority. This is nature, this is how it works. This is what you're teaching yourself when you notice craving coming up. If you crave pleasure, any kind of pleasure, pleasurable physical experiences, mental experiences, they will also be the cause for pain. They come together. So this is a way we teach ourselves to step back from craving because we see its limitations. And this is the way we have to teach ourselves, remind ourselves and observe that where there is craving for something, it will also bring us discontent, displeasure, dissatisfaction, even if we get the thing we crave. You follow craving, it will always bring you to some dukkha, some disappointment, smaller or larger. But if we keep learning from this, observing our minds under the influence of craving and then stepping back from it, letting it go, letting it be, then we're developing this higher awareness, the awareness supported by equanimity, understanding the nature of the, the things of this world are, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the nature of our craving is impermanent, leading to suffering if we follow it. You'll see that. So naturally the mind will tire of what it's attaching to and craving for because we know it's only going to lead to more suffering. Whether it's just the desire to scratch an itch, say during meditation, enough to maybe distract us for a while, or the craving for sex, or the craving for money, or different experiences, or a certain kind of job, certain kind of lifestyle, you know, whether small or big, and they tend to, f different kinds of craving tend to follow the same pattern. So you be when you're reflecting wisely, you're seeing this familiar pattern, which helps to unravel the sort of tendency to just follow habit, habits of mind based on craving. And there's this freedom that arises where you feel you're not totally enslaved by craving and the objects of craving. Whether it's dissatisfaction and getting upset, angry with things or greed and desire. Delusion is always harder because it's you know, our fundamental view of things <clears throat> which is often wrong, is definitely wrong when we start practicing. We have to accept that. And in the world often we're not 
willing to accept we're wrong. <clears throat> Doesn't sound good. But as a practitioner, we have to be a bit humble and develop the earthworm's view of things and accept when we do have a whole pile of delusion in this mind. We do take things that are impermanent as permanent. We crave that, we seek that. We take things that are inherently dukkha as the source of sukha, happiness. And we take things that are not self as self. So we suffer. These are the delusions underlying what we do, but there's so many subtle delusions we have to be willing to keep looking at our attitudes, our motivations. Sometimes we have hidden motives even in the good that we do. Sometimes we do good hoping for recognition or praise from others, thinking somehow that's a real lasting reward for the good we do rather than doing it as a way performing good actions to let go of attachment to see and a let go of attachment we're actually doing to build up a more more attachment maybe to become a good meditator or a good teacher or a good person or somebody who is good to the world or whatever we may have these ideas lying behind our actions Still, it's a delusion of self, slipping in even to the good things we do. Sometimes we go the other way. We go into a more destructive way. So we have the delusion that maybe just the harder I practice, the better it will be, the more I can destroy defilement, get rid of defilement from my mind. So we're willing to be very patient and endure through hardship sometimes when actually we're not really gaining any more mindfulness or wisdom. Sometimes we'll sit meditation for long periods, which generally sounds good, but if we're just sitting in a cross-legged posture, say, or walking meditation, but not very mindful, we're just clocking up the hours, but the quality of mindfulness is not there, maybe we're deluding ourselves, saying that we're a good meditator or doing a lot of meditation. Or maybe we fast or we go without sleep and the fruits of our actions are that physically and mentally we're just very tired and not much mindfulness, not much insight. But the view is we must be doing something good because we're being very patient and enduring, practicing very hard, sleeping little, eating little or eating not at all. But it's a delusion, isn't it? We're being patient where patience is not fruitful. Patiently making the mind more confused, more miserable, maybe. Sometimes we use patience in the other way. People be very patient waiting in a monastery, you know, waiting for a meal or waiting for an extra drink, we can be very patient because there's something we want. Or maybe just waiting to meditate with nothing material as a goal. It's hard to summon up that patience to do a bit of extra sitting and walking. 
when we're hoping for something, trying to, we're expecting something, we can be very patient. If you're just meditating on letting go of self, well, maybe it doesn't sound so attractive as, a, as an ideal, so our patience is harder to find. Delusions like this, it slips in even to the good that we're doing. Hidden motives, unrecognized intentions, unrecognized attachments. Where we're identifying with, with this sense of self in something we're doing, but not seeing the very self that is causing us suffering. So reflecting back on some of Ajahn Chah's core teachings <clears throat> is always useful living in the forest, remembering his re emphasis on keeping the Vinaya as purely as well as you can to actually train the mind in mindfulness, wisdom, insight into the true nature of things and putting effort into the sitting, the walking meditation, the chanting, listening to Dhamma, all the aspects of our practice. The core what? The Acharya what? The Sainasana what? These different what as we learn in the Vinaya. Putting effort into these, these are our daily practice that Ajahn Chah encouraged because they're ways of training the mind. And coming to see the nature of this world as it is. You know, it's really a delusion or an illusion. Things that are not solid and stable, we think are solid and stable, so we grasp onto them with attachment. And the, re the only real abiding place or refuge is Dhamma. You know, that will support you right to the very end of your life, the last breath of your life is Dhamma that you've trained in and understood. Just noticing impermanence. If you've trained that, you know, just to see the uncertainty of the mind, as Ajahn Chah used to say, it's not certain, not sure. Just that much is an insight that you can use right to the end of your life. It'll outlast any material object, any pleasant worldly experience you can have just the insight into the uncertainty of your own mind. Your thoughts come and go, moods change, feelings arise, pass away, sense consciousness constantly changing. It's all very uncertain. But the insight into the certainty, or the insight into the uncertainty is what's certain. So we can really use these teachings. Ajahn Chah is like the quality of a good teacher, a good Kalyanamita is he saves you time. If you take his teachings on board, use them. They just save you so much time kind of fumbling around, trying to find the, the way to practice, find out the truth. He's already pointed us in the right direction and given, given us very direct teachings, reflections, ways of practice that we can use. It's the greatest gift, as the Buddha said, you know, giving Dhamma is the greatest gift you can give to a person. Which is probably why Lumpur Cha's name is so 
well known still today. People still go to his monastery for these events in large numbers. And the monasteries are spreading all over the world because there's a certain flavor to the teachings, reflections, teachings that resonates with many, many people. There's very simple but direct ways to see the truth, liberate the mind. So, I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.